racism. That's a word that gets your attention, doesn't it? Right away, you say racism. A couple of you go, uh-oh, he didn't say that, did he? Racism is a word that gets your attention. Uh, and remember, a couple weeks ago, we talked about sexism. That's a word that gets your attention. And just like we said with sexism, the problem with racism is it's rooted in sin. And as long as we have sin, which we're going to have until we get to heaven, we're going to have to fight that battle. It's, it's reality. Racism is here. As long as me and mine are more important than you and yours, we've got a problem, right? But we see that played out with our local sports teams. Isn't that crazy? People will, will fight for a sports team, and they don't even know a single player on the team. They'll beat people up. Unbelievable what we'll do. Now, if it's your own family, imagine what happens. You get some weapons in your hands, and next thing you know, you have a war. And then people take power over other people. And so we see this playing itself out in a lot of different scenarios. We certainly see it even in our country where you have people of one nationality primarily in a position to police people in another group that are of another race. And man, you got a lot of news coverage, right? That's what we're seeing on the news all the time today. Now, it's true that people, when they're impoverished, can become criminal. But it isn't true that all people that are impoverished or minorities are criminal. I had the privilege, years ago even, um, to work in the inner city with a kid. It was kind of like a big brother situation, not formally that. He was African-American, and I, we played basketball together and hung out, and I hung out with his friends, and then we'd go in and we'd study. And, and it was a different kind of scenario. I remember sitting in the library, helping him, you know, tutoring him with some studying, and he said, don't look up. And I said, what do you mean? He says, don't look at those guys. Don't look them in the eyes. He said, they're with a gang, and just, just pretend you don't know what's going on. It was a different world. Yet we'd go home and to the apartment where he lived, and his mom was just a classy lady, really nice, and she'd sit down and talk to us. How's my boy doing? Just fell in love with this family. Good, good people. But it was a, it was a different world that they were living in. I've been on the flip side because for three years I was a volunteer chaplain with the San Diego County um, Sheriff's Deputies. And we had some guys that were a little bit different. But you know what? Overall, we had some wonderful men and women who were altruistic, people who would give their lives to protect the people they were serving. Some incredible human beings that really inspired me. So, you know, there's, there's good on both sides. But you can see where this thing kind of steams up. Now, have I got your attention? What we're going to do is we're going to take the same story and see it hasn't changed a whole lot. We're going to move back 2,000 years. 2,000 years, the Roman Empire is powerful. I mean, they are ruling the known world of their day. And if you go to Galilee, which is the district where Jesus lived, which was once been part of the great kingdom of Israel, the Jewish people, even though they're a majority in their own place, they're still ruled by the power above them. Now, what would happen in Israel is they didn't actually have uh, the Roman soldiers necessarily ruling them always, but they would have people under the Herodian army. The Herodians, who are they? Remember who, who was king when Jesus was born? Anybody know? Herod, right? Herod the Great. Well, he kicked off, but he had a family, and they were called the Herodians. 
And so they would actually be subsidized and supported in different ways by the Roman government, and they set up the same military system, and they would rule that area. They would have regiments in different regions to try to control the people. They would be the policemen of the day. And the person that was over these groups of people were called centurions. Do you know why they were called centurions? Anybody want to guess? It starts with the word C, you know, the word cent, C-E-N-T. Yes. A hundred men. So the centurions, boy, good job. So the centurions controlled a hundred men. And so they would have these groups in different places. Now, the centurion, um, he had the rank roughly of a lieutenant in the army, but he was a non-commissioned officer. Uh, he would be somebody in this case that was probably not Roman, not Jewish. They were bringing him from outside. One of my sources said he was probably a Syrian. Jewish people, of course, there's some racism there between the Syrians and the Jewish people, okay? And so he comes into a powerful position. He would be uneducated. He would be uncultured. He would be unloved. And he would be paid big bucks. And he, for his own reasons, like even policemen can become sometimes, would become pretty cynical about these Jewish people who were known for causing trouble and who were, by the way, intolerant. You know, isn't that interesting? Sort of like we have today. It's this whole tolerant thing because the Roman Empire wanted everybody to be tolerant and everybody could believe whatever they wanted to believe. And they had all these different gods, which thankfully have turned into some great comic book characters for Marvel Comics. And, but they wanted you to just believe whatever you wanted to believe, but the Jewish people and later the Christians would say there's one God and there's one Bible and that would mess everything up. And so... Already, he looked at these guys with a jaundiced eye, and he knew they'd caused some trouble in the past. And so generally, the centurions really kind of looked down on the Jews. How did the Jews feel about centurions? They did not like these dudes. They saw that they could be ruthless and merciless. And so this is a very tense situation that we have before us, and it sets the stage for our new sermon series, which is called Outsiders. We're going to look at some people that were on the fringes of society and how Jesus dealt with them when he came into contact with them. And the first guy we're going to look at today is a centurion. It would have been very hard earlier for the Jewish people to envision the Messiah being kind to a centurion. But it would be very hard for them to envision the kind of centurion that we're about to meet. You ready? Okay, let's jump into it. We're going to be looking at Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 10, and Jesus is going to heal a centurion servant. To set the stage, we're going to look at this first paragraph, verses six, 1 through 6. Jesus is asked to heal the servant, so the whole thing is set up. Let's see how it all kind of comes about. We'll read the first six verses. When Jesus had finished saying all this in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. There a centurion's servant, whom his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him. This man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. When Jesus had finished saying this, what was, saying all this, what are they talking about? Anybody know? 
What was he, what did he just finish saying? Do you remember? We just did a series on it. It's what the, in those days, or the theologians and scholars today in Luke call it Jesus' Sermon on the Plain. In Matthew, it's called his Sermon on the Mount, right? Okay, so this, is, this was Jesus' keynote address, and he gave variations of it throughout his ministry. He's just sort of formally launched his ministry. He's on his way, and he's given this big message, and he's given it. So this is taking place in close proximity to that event. Now, here's an interesting thing. It says that he said this in their hearing, and I, you know, it's kind of like, duh, you know, of course he says this, they're there, they hear him, right? Okay, good, we'll move on. But in Greek, that it, it carries a different kind of meaning. It's not just that he said that in their hearing, but in other words, they've heard it, and they have an obligation, so to speak, to do something with what he said. They now have the information. In an oral culture, with oral tradition, they probably memorized everything that he had said. And now they could go around and share that with other people. And that is what they did, and that's going to be central to what we learn today. And we will often talk to you about the fact that God has supernaturally and strategically placed eight to 15 people in your life whom you can influence for him. That's how this story unfolds today. Because the people who heard this sermon, they went back to the people in their household and they told their servants and they told their family and they told their friends. And that's how this information got around. How did the centurion hear about all this? Because somebody came and talked to him. That sets the stage. And that's why it just emphasizes why it's so important for us to do the same, to befriend people, to love them, to invite them to church, to tell them what you're learning, tell them what God is doing in your life. And that's what they did. And so when he had this crisis, he said, let's go talk to Jesus. I've heard the stuff about him. I've heard about his message. I've heard about his miracles. I'm desperate. I want to get this guy healed. I'll try him out. And so they found Jesus at his home in Capernaum by the Sea of Galilee, just as he had come back probably before he actually got to his home, but he lived in Capernaum. And uh, he really valued his servant. Now, Matthew tells the exact same story in Matthew chapter 5, or Matthew chapter 8, verses 5 through 13. Exact same story, but he is customarily more concise. So he doesn't go into all the details. He doesn't even tell us that this guy sent intermediaries, you know, to ask for information. All All he does is he just says, this is the question, this is the things that the centurion said. Um, but there are some things that are helpful for Matthew's details that Luke leaves out. One of them is, is he tells us what was wrong with the guy. He was paralyzed, and he was suffering terribly. So the centurion, you know, his heart goes out to this guy who is one of his best servants, and he needs him. So that sets the stage, but listen to what he does. He sends some Jewish elders of the Jews. He doesn't send rabbis of the Jews, which would be synagogue officials, he sends probably community leaders. And these community leaders beg, they beg Jesus to come. And this is where it gets really unusual. A centurion, why would they do this on behalf of a centurion? Because he was a good man. He loved Israel. And he had helped finance, generously finance, the building of their synagogue. 
this guy was a good cop. One guy I was studying, one commentarian said that it's kind of like the picture of a soldier, maybe an officer who goes overseas in war, and he falls in love with the people where he's at. And he sets up a foundation to help them. Maybe he moves in, there helps. It's that kind of a picture. He, he spent time with these people, and he found out they weren't as bad as he heard they were. And he developed a relationship with them. Some have wondered if he became a proselyte. In other words, he converted to Judaism. But if he had, wouldn't they have said so? if they're trying to get Jesus to come. So probably not. He may have been a candidate for that. He certainly was one who had respect for the God of the Bible and for the Jewish people. And so at this stage, I think it's, it's fair to say that he is a man who is desperate to get his servant fixed and get him better and back to work. And he's really caring for him. He's a good man, good cop. And he says, I need some help. I'll try this guy Jesus out because the message and the miracles that people keep telling me about him are so amazing, I'm willing to give him a shot. And then we get to the core of the message, and we see that Jesus' authority is acknowledged in this next paragraph, starting at verse 6b. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. This is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you, But say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes. And that one, come, and he comes. And I say to my servant, do this. And he does it. This is amazing. To me, the first thing I thought of is he didn't want Jesus to come because it would be awkward for a Jewish rabbi to go into the home of a Gentile. But there's something else going on here. The first thing we see is this man has incredible humility. He's figuring it out, and he's saying, if Jesus is everything that he appears to be, and this doesn't say that he recognizes that Jesus is the Messiah, but if he is this great of a prophet, then even though he is, to me, a peasant, and I am the ruler of this area militarily, he's greater than I am. And I don't really deserve that get anything from him. He puts that in perspective pretty quickly. And then he compares Jesus's power with the most powerful military structure known to the earth at that time. And he says, there are people that I'm under and I do what they say. There are people under me and they do what I say. If you are that powerful that you can do some of the miracles and things I've heard that you do, then you can tell, tell whatever's causing this guy to be ill to go away, and it will go away, and you don't have to be here. All you have to do is snap your finger, and it will happen. I believe that. What's amazing about that is probably most of us in this room would say that we too believe that Jesus can do whatever he wants. But do we really live that way? This guy says it, and he puts his faith in practice. He believes and he actively believes and practices what he professes to believe. He puts it into practice. And Jesus responds, for for us that know Jesus, he responds predictably. Uh, Jesus in this last paragraph praises his faith and heals his servant. Starting in verse 9, when Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. He turned to the crowd following him and he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. 
Then the man who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. It says that Jesus was amazed, and the word evokes emotion. In other words, Jesus got emotional over this. He, it, it kind of you know, maybe choked him up. Um, the centurion's faith touched the heart of God. And he turns, and he, he, the idea that he turns is this is a teachable moment, and he teaches out of this. And he says, I haven't found such faith even in Israel. And sometimes we think what he's saying is, you see, you Jewish people, you don't have any faith. And this guy has faith. That's not what he's saying. He's saying you would expect us as Jewish people to have that kind of faith. But who would expect it from a Gentile? That's what he's saying. Who would expect this from a Gentile? But he has that kind of faith. And it's a lesson for them because Jesus has been saying that he's come not just for the Jews, but for everyone. And this is one of those moments where there's just this breakthrough. You see, there are good Gentiles too. And anybody who places their, their, you know, their heart in my hands and gives me their lives, surrenders to me, the whole equation changes. And he begins to open the door right here for that. And then he turns around and essentially with the snap of a finger, he heals this man without ever seeing him and proves that he's everything that this man thought he was. So what do we do with this? How does this story 2,000 years ago have any kind of bearing on our lives today? Let's take a look at this. First thing I see is that Jesus responds to all who place their faith in him regardless of race. Whoever places their faith in him, even for the Jewish people, a Gentile, God will work in their lives. When I was young, I remember reading the Bible, and I thought, man, I wish I was Jewish, because it seems like they're, the, they're God's people. They're the important ones. I'm not. When I got older, I came to realize that American Christians are God's chosen people. I didn't realize that before, right? Um, so now I'm okay. Reality is, is we tend to think whatever we are is what's best. But it doesn't work that way. God it loves all of us equally but differently, like we said with the differences with genders. He loves everybody, anybody who wants to follow him. And, and in many ways, we're a kaleidoscope that represents all of who God is. When we talked about that 8 to 15 people in your life that God has supernaturally or strategically placed there, I have a feeling that many or most of you have one person in that group who is of a different nationality or background or race than you are in some significant way. And I have a feeling that some of you are inclined to say, well, yeah, I work with that gal or I work with that guy or I see him at school or whatever, they're neighbors, and I'm always nice to them, but I can't really pursue a relationship with that person because we're just too different. And, and what this passage is arguing is you can. And it may be awkward at first. It's been awkward for me, and there's been times I have to admit that I think not realizing it, I've been prejudiced or racist. But when you develop a relationship with someone who's different than you, it's amazing how much you'll grow through it 
and how much better you understand the depth and diversity of the God who makes all of us. And so I just strongly encourage you to look on the people around you. Um, push yourself beyond your boundaries and build relationships with people that are different than you. And don't judge them, but love them for who they are and be surprised with what might happen. At the same time, I would say the same thing applies to people of different positions. How many of us have friends that are policemen? And by the way, we have some good cops here, so um, we need to be careful what we say, right? All of us love policemen when they're helping us. We only don't like them when we see their lights in our rearview mirror, right? <laughs> of course, whenever we've been given a ticket, it wasn't our fault. Truth is, last time I got a ticket, I deserved it, and I didn't need to thank that officer. I think he got me set straight. They're, they're doing their job. And sometimes they may make mistakes, but they're doing the best they can, and they have one of the most difficult jobs, I believe, on this planet. You take those guys away from us, and I don't know how long we would exist. We'd probably destroy each other in a very short period of time. So we need to make friends with people like that. Now, how about teachers? I remember when I was a kid, I used to think teachers were kind of the bad guys. And then as you get older, you become friends with your teachers or professors, and you realize, oh, they're human beings just like I am. How about lawyers and politicians? There may be an exception. <laughs> but, you know, the truth is, how many of us that say there are no good lawyers and politicians have ever established a relationship with a lawyer-politician? I actually have a couple friends that are uh, lawyers, really good guys, um, and I'm loaded with jokes for those guys. Um, I don't have any friends that are politicians yet. But I, know, I actually have known people that have been in office and I have had some, some friends with you. In fact, uh, we used to have the mayor of the town I used to live in down south used to meet with us for prayer every month. He's a good man. So we need to, to reach out to people that are different than us in different positions, different races. The other thing that's really central to this passage is that sometimes we don't have to see to believe. You hear the saying, seeing is believing. Sometimes you don't have to see to believe. How often have people said to you, or maybe you've said, if Jesus actually stood before me and showed himself to me, then I would believe. Well, imagine if he had to do that for all of us. For everybody who's ever lived, he had to keep showing up all the time. He'd never make it to heaven, neither would we. It doesn't work that way. We're not the ones who tell him. It's like you telling your boss, you come here for me at this time, I need you here to help me. You don't tell your boss that. You do what your boss tells you to do. God is the creator of the universe. He's the one in charge, not us. He can do whatever he wants. And frankly, if he did what was just, he'd just obliterate all of us. But because he is a God of grace, he extends his love to us. He sends his son to die on the cross for us. How are we going to respond to that? We have far more information than this, this centurion. 
we have 2,000 years we can look back at all the history of Jesus, plus we can see that all the work that he's been doing in people's lives since then. So what's keeping you from believing? What's stopping you from believing? What's stopping you from giving your life to Jesus Christ? What's keeping you from really believing that he can do big things in your life? Maybe there's something deep down inside. Maybe there's some sin in your life, some guilt, to understand that God is a God of grace. He's the God that loves and forgives, can set that free. Maybe it's just a matter of humbling ourselves before him and saying, uh, the world doesn't revolve around me, and I'm not perfect. I can't get it all together all the time. I don't know what it is, but I encourage you to think through what is it that that holds you back from believing because the information is all there. And then finally, Jesus has authority over everything. Think of the implications of that. If Jesus has authority over everything, there's absolutely nothing that he can't do. Do we pray accordingly? Do we pray like we believe that he has that kind of power? I encourage you to. You know, I want to, um, I'll put forth a challenge for you today, all right? Uh, this is something I've learned in my life. That as long as I'm walking with God, okay, if I'm reading my Bible regularly, I'm listening to him, and I'm talking to him, I'm confessing any sin I have, I'm interacting with other believers, and they're supporting me and helping me in my relationship with God. And I have desires, you know, that come to my mind, and they're not unbiblical, they're not immoral, there's nothing wrong with them. I pray those things, and you know what happens? Overwhelmingly, those prayers are answered time and time again. Not always are they answered exactly the way I thought they would be, but invariably they are answered much better than I thought they would be. We need to pray that way. Sure, sometimes God will say no for our own good, but you'll be surprised how often he'll say yes. So the challenge is for you is think of one thing even that you think, oh, I can't imagine that ever happening. And it's a good thing, and you don't know any reason why God wouldn't want it to, it may be the healing of somebody. It may be the healing of somebody's marriage. It may be seeing somebody come into a relationship with the Lord. Uh, it may be even, you know, something at work, you know, using your abilities and gifts more effectively for God. Maybe something related to the church or community, world. And pray for it. Over the next few months, I want you to pray for those things, believing it. And I want you to tell me what God's doing in your life when you get a chance. I'd love to hear it. But I think we need to believe God for big things. It's not a name it or claim it type thing. It's just God wants to do wonderful things in our lives. And sometimes the only thing that holds him back is he's waiting for us to, to ask and to ask believing. We have a prayer ministry too. So I just looked up and I saw Meg. So Meg, raise your hand. Meg, Meg is here. She's heading up our prayer ministry. If you have prayer requests, you can always tell her or put it in the back um, in the offering. Or if you'd like to be on the prayer team, Shoot, everybody in this church could be on the prayer team. Just let her know, and we'll put you on our prayer team so you can pray for others as well. Hey, what do you think happened to the centurion? Do you think he'll be in heaven? One person says yes. That's not the majority. We are uh, a democracy. So not looking good from that point. Truth is, in the Bible, it doesn't say. But I can't help but believe that he will be, based on the faith that he's already shown. 
you can know for sure that one day you'll be with God in heaven uh, if you follow the ABCs of salvation. A, admit that you're a sinner in need of a savior. See, he was there. He understood that even though he was kind of in a respected role, that he really wasn't anybody. He was just a regular guy, and he couldn't get there on his own. B, believe that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave. That hadn't happened yet, but I can't help believe that he didn't respond when it did. And we have all that information we've just talked about these last few weeks about uh, information, evidence that supports those claims. And then finally, you choose to follow Christ and place your faith in him alone. And if you're interested in doing that, please come and talk to us because we'd love to talk with you and pray with you that uh, you may no longer be an outsider, but that you might be inside the kingdom of heaven for eternity. Join me in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much for the story of this centurion. What a, what a fine man uh, he was. Uh, very unusual story that he would be such a good man and that the Jewish people would be so kind to him in return. Um, amazing story. And Lord, we know the same thing happens in our world. And Lord, I, I can't even help but pray uh, for some of the chaos and the violence happening um, these days, of course, this last week or so with Baltimore, and even today, uh, continued problems locally, really, in Oakland, not that far from us. Um, Lord, I pray that you would bring peace to our country and pray that you would help us when we have opportunity to love people of different races and to love people of different positions of power. Uh, pray that we would... Um, be people that could extend the grace and love of Jesus Christ. And we pray for each of us here that we would grow in our relationship with you or come to know you if we do not know you yet. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.